You're listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. The quality of your sleep can play a big part in how you feel about the night. But it's not simply a matter of good or bad sleep. It can be much more complicated than that. Sure, sleep can be delicious, and it can be a torment. For some, though, sleep can serve as both refuge and captor. That's the case for Monica, who's blessed with the enviable ability to consistently sleep through the night, almost without fail, no matter what's going on. During one of the most difficult times of her life, this gift became a painful liability. But before you continue listening, you should know that this story deals with something very sad, and you might want to leave yourself a little time to have your feelings after it's over. I'm Monica Wesolaska. I'm a writer, and I am a parent of two boys. Monica is one of those highly creative people who do their best work in the morning. And so she's always set up her life so that the morning is free for her to write. All through my 20s and my early 30s, every job I did after college was at night so that I could be at home alone during the day writing. Her routine was pretty well set. Her day job would go till around 9.30 at night, and then she'd usually get plenty of sleep before getting up to write in the morning. That was key, because sleep is really important to Monica. I approach bedtime as this eagerly anticipated event where I can just let go of whatever has been winding me up throughout the day. I'm kind of a roller coaster person during the day. I know I have highs and crashes all day long, and the nighttime is just this time to lie down and breathe easily. I've always been a really heavy sleeper. So once I go to sleep, I generally don't wake up. And ideally, I would sleep for 10 hours a night. Sometimes I fall asleep within seconds of lying down, and I have no memory of anything at all until I wake up in the morning. I lie down, and then it's morning. Despite her love of sleep, Monica has no trouble staying up late if she wants to. I can stay up all night if I'm having a good time. It is much easier for me to stay awake than to wake up. Just as long as I don't go to sleep, everything's going to be okay. And there's the catch. There's a flip side to being such a heavy sleeper. If I do wake up, Generally, I go right back to sleep. But if something is required of me, it's really hard for me to stay awake. I really feel that I'm kind of enveloped in honey. If Monica tries to emerge from sleep prematurely, it's as though there's some force trying to drag her back under. And as she doesn't relent, things become unpleasant on many levels. There's something about being woken up and required to get up that makes me feel nauseated. I do anything I can, if I'm going to travel, not to have to get up in the dark. Because if I have to wake up in the dark, my entire being screams, it's not worth it. Don't go on vacation. (laughs) 
and I have to press through that hurdle. But it's really, it's a horrible way to start a vacation, having everything in your mind screaming, don't go, it's not worth it, you'll probably die. You'll never return. It will have been a, a tragic mistake to go on this trip. If I get woken up too many times in a row, suddenly I can't go to sleep anymore. And then I have really severe not being able to go to sleep. It rarely happens because I rarely wake up. But if I do get woken up multiple times, my anxiety is incredible. And it always seems to have to do with time, mortality. I haven't done the right things in my life. There's not that much time left. What should I be doing? All those things. I guess my demons come out after dark, and so <laughs> nothing that I think in the middle of the night is useful. <laughs> when Monica's sons, Miles and Ivan, were babies, somehow she was able to wake up to nurse them at night. It was a small, anomalous window in this sleep pattern. Her husband, David, would often help by bringing the baby to her in bed. What amazed David the most about me as a nursing mother is that I would go from completely out to smiling at my baby. But if one of the kids had the stomach flu, I was a wreck. I could jump from bed, and I still jump from bed if I hear one of my children vomiting. And I get into the bedroom and I help them to the toilet, and then I stop being able to function because I start going back to sleep. I very often say to myself, I'm just gonna lie down for a couple minutes till the nausea passes, and then I fall asleep. And then David usually comes to investigate after a few minutes and finds that I'm lying on the floor next to them and he takes over. David is a very light sleeper. He wakes up many, many times a night and gets up and does things like stretches or sometimes he has to do some work in the middle of the night for his job. So what this means is that David is in charge of everything in the night, just by default. He hears a noise, and so he gets up and investigates. I don't even hear the noise. Or he says, did you hear that noise? And I say, yes. And he says, I'm going to get up and investigate. And by the time he gets back, I've fallen asleep. David is a lovely man, and he accepts his extra night responsibilities gracefully. The one time I think he's really irritated with my nighttime incapacity is when there's a mosquito in the room. Because he gets up to hunt that mosquito, and he says, you need to look and tell me where it is. Do you see it? Do you see it? And, and he says that over and over, and the lights can be, every light in the room can be on, and I'll, I'll try, and I'll try, and my eyes will start closing, and then I'll fall asleep. And he says, what, what would you do without me? The challenges created by Monica's deep sleep are quirky and interesting and funny even. 
But there was a period in her life when that was not at all the case, and when the incapacitating nature of her sleep was deeply troubling to her. I've had three boys, Sylvan, Miles, and Ivan. Miles and Ivan are nine and 11 now, but Sylvan is gone. Sylvan was my first. He was a perfectly healthy baby in utero, but something happened during my labor and he was asphyxiated and he died when he was 38 days old. The first three weeks he was in the hospital, during that time we were trying to understand what exactly was wrong with him and eventually we knew that he'd been extremely brain damaged. In fact, he'd been so brain damaged that he was surviving only on life support. The doctors told us that his brain damage was so extreme that really we would never have encountered a child like this out in the world. A child like this would be permanently hospitalized. He, as it turns out, was able to breathe on his own, though that was not known at first. But beyond that, he really couldn't coordinate sucking and breathing, eating and breathing at the same time. He couldn't control his own limbs. He probably was deaf and blind. He wouldn't have ever been able to communicate. And in fact, he most likely would not have really understood that there were other people out there. Sylvan was on total life support. He was on on a ventilator to help him breathe. He was on uh, medications to stop his seizures and he was on artificial hydration and nutrition. So David and I started pushing the hospital to tell us what our options were for him, because it seemed to us that being kept alive on life support wasn't really a life for him. Eventually the hospital told us that we could remove him from all life support. And that's what we did. That was a really horrifying step to take. It runs counter to everything that a parent wants to do, but it seemed that it was the most loving thing to do for Sylvan. Sylvan had been resuscitated at birth and resuscitated multiple times. So really the quandary we found ourselves in was that he had been brought back to life, and now we had to take an active choice to let him go ahead and die. Choosing to remove our son from life support was terrifying, a really challenging choice to make on so many levels, and it did mean that he was not going to eat anymore. So we knew that he was going to die sooner rather than later and our 
whole task in life became one of keeping him comfortable. Sylvan was transferred to another hospital, and so I immediately had myself discharged from the hospital where I'd given birth. We just started this vigil at the other hospital. Those first three weeks, I, of course, was recovering. I was postpartum. Um, So I was doing two things. I was spending as much time as I could at the hospital, and I was also trying to recover my physical strength which meant amazingly that I slept like a log until it was time to wake up and go to the hospital. But as those weeks went by, my need to be with Sylvan all the time just grew and grew. And so David and I were staying up later and later and later and coming home from the hospital at midnight, then at one, then at two, then at three, and driving through those empty city streets and jumping into bed and waking up as soon as we could to drive back to the hospital. One of the things that made me want to be at the hospital so much at night is that one of the nurses told me that babies often died alone in the middle of the night. And I, the most important thing to me in the world was that Sylvan not die alone. So I was there later and later, and eventually one of the nurses, oh, actually many of the nurses started saying, why don't you take him home? And at first we resisted because we were afraid. We'd never had a baby before. (laughs) So it's, you know, in part just that new parent thing. Oh my God, you're going to give us this baby and we have to take him home. And not only that, what we're doing is we're taking care of him until he dies. How crazy is that? But the nurses were really persistent and they started saying, you know, you can go home with hospice and they would be very helpful to you. And we took Sylvan home. It was really important that we have hospice because if he died at home and we didn't have hospice, we might be investigated for doing something wrong. So now he was at home with us and I didn't have to worry that he would be apart from us when he died because we were always with him. Well, now we had this new challenge. Sylvan slept in our bed, of course. And that meant that every single night we would lie down with him and we would have this ritual of kissing him and taking turns kissing him and I would always have to be the last one to kiss him because I was getting into this kind of loop because we knew that he might be dead when we woke up in the morning. So that was a really new way to think of sleeping. 
The really strange thing to me was that I would, after going through this ritual of kissing him, I would fall asleep and not wake up until the morning. He, he would wake us up sometimes, um, you know, with movement. And I had a few nights where it was very much like parenting a newborn because he was kind of, you know, he was agitated. And so I would get up and walk with him or sleep with him on the sofa or just trying to spare David, make sure that both of us didn't uh, lose sleep. And of course, I was totally motivated to be awake at those times because this was a baby I was only going to be with for a few more days. There was no way I was going to begrudge him my sleep. But I got really, really worried that he would start to die when I was asleep and I would fail to wake up properly. It would be like one of those mosquito hunting sessions where I would be trying to wake up and David would have to keep waking me up. And in fact, that did start to happen one night. We woke up and he seemed to be having his final breaths. Sylvan was having trouble breathing, so Monica and David gave him a dose of morphine, which can relax the airways and can help people die more peacefully. They expected that those would be Sylvan's last moments. There were two parts of my brain operating at the same time, because on the one hand, I was there giving him some medication, and David and I were singing to him because we thought we should sing to keep him calm. And the other part of my brain was saying, oh my God, I feel nauseated. I think I'm going to fall asleep. Don't die when I am focused on myself. I just wanted to be focused entirely on him. And instead, my body kept calling me back to it, saying, it's nighttime. You should be asleep. What are you doing awake? And so we held him and we, and we held him and we sang and I started to feel more and more nauseated. I just, I just wanted to flop back down on the bed and fall asleep. And he started breathing okay again. And, and that was it. We couldn't believe it. And apparently it wasn't his death throes. Apparently he was just having trouble breathing and the morphine had relaxed him. And we lay him down between us again and I was out like a light. The most important thing to Monica during this whole time was that Sylvan always be held in someone's arms, preferably hers or David's. Well, after that nighttime scare, I just held him even more. If I wasn't holding him, someone else was holding him. People would call and say, what can we do? Can we bring food? Can we, how can we help? And I'd say, oh, you need to come and hold Sylvan. I want to take a shower. You have to hold Sylvan. The only time I ever left the house during that whole time period was when my mother came over because I figured if he died in my mother's arms, that would be okay. If it had to be someone else's arms or David's, of course. When David and I ate, we'd bring his little bed from our bed and put it right next to us. And in fact, on his final day, a friend came and we had um, some, some nice food that someone had brought 
you know, these things become so vivid. It was chicken, there was lemonade, there was chocolate. I remember all those things. And Sylvan was right there, right next to my plate on his little bed where I could watch him the whole time. And then after lunch, we sat and we were talking and I was holding him. And it was a, a beautiful day with bits of cloud in the sky and the early summer sunshine and I was sitting there talking and feeling somewhat at peace because I was holding him and then I just realized he wasn't really moving anymore and I had that same split feeling of being present for Sylvan and also being really relieved that he died in the middle of the day because I could fully focus on him and and we bathed him and we dressed him in in a in a white blanket and I could do all that and then know that after I'd taken care of him, I could sit down and have a cup of tea and feel kind of like life was still going on. I think if he died at night, I don't know this for sure, but my fear was that if he died at night, I wouldn't be fully awake, I wouldn't be fully focused on him, and then he would be gone and it would be the middle of the night and I would feel at a total loss. It's the middle of the night. What do I want to do? I want to go back to sleep. Oh, but that's wrong because my baby's dead and I, and I should be focusing on him. And instead, we could sit with him and, and, and it was a long process and we had other people come and, and, and see him and when the undertaker came, it was that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life is hand his body over. But after the undertaker drove away, I looked out the window and this incredible sunlight was slanting underneath the fog and hitting these giant trees down the block. And again, I had that feeling of the beauty of life. The moment I realized that Sylvan was dead was a blend of profound despair because he was gone and also enormous relief because he'd left in the most peaceful manner possible. I'm sure that night after Sylvan died, I slept deeply. Thank you to Monica Wesolowska for sharing her story. You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. 
Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Monica wrote a beautiful memoir called Holding Sylvan, which I highly recommend. You can find links to that book and more of her work at nocturnepodcast.org under the credits for this episode. You can support Nocturne by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and donating on Patreon. There are links to all of that on the website. Word of mouth is really helpful, too. Please let others know if you like the show. If you have a story that relates to the night, we would love to hear about it. Send us an email at hello at nocturnepodcast.org. Nocturne is a founding member of The Herd, a collective of six independent story-driven podcasts. One of those shows is Neighbors by Jacob Lewis. It's an excellent medicine for any sort of brokenness. It's clowning and I suppose the idea is to, you know, give a medicine. That's kind of why I was employed. But, I don't know, when you're really doing it right, it's an exchange of medicine and, ex- and everyone's healing, you know. And it's not just, I'm here because I'm going to help you. It's like, I'm here because we're all going to feel a little better. Find out more about Neighbors and the other shows in The Herd at theherdradio.com. That's the H-E-A-R-D radio.com. Thanks for listening.